We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Welcome! You are listening to That's What I Call Science, and I'm really excited for today's show. You know, listeners that are tuning in regularly, we love bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania, and it's usually about science, technology, engineering, maths, and medicine. Well, today we're talking with someone I'm super excited about, and an organisation I is really clear, close to my heart because it enables so much discovery and impact in Tasmania. So we'll be talking about the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation with CEO Heather Francis. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined with my first time ever co-host Ellie Clapham who also listeners just I'm a little bit excited about it. Ellie's going to be starting her PhD with me very shortly. Welcome Ellie. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here as well. Awesome. So I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording the Palawa and Pakana people as we record on Lutruwita, Tasmania. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands across where you are listening. On behalf of everybody, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So I'm going to hand over to Ellie because you've been volunteering with the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation for a long time now, and I think you are the best placed person to introduce our wonderful guest this morning. Thanks, Neve. So as Neve mentioned today, we will be talking with Heather Francis, who is the CEO of the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation, which is one of the largest funders of medical research in Tasmania. In this episode, we will take a new and unique look at science by discussing how science actually comes to life through funding and how science plays an important role on a community level as well. So, Heather, you are the CEO of the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation and have a strong presence in many other aspects of medical research in Tasmania. And through these positions, you have guided this industry and the foundation through many milestones and successes. For example, the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation is currently recognised as the second largest funding body for medical research in Tasmania and has granted just under $10 million to local Tasmanian studies, which is incredible. So needless to say that the foundation has been hugely impactful on the local science and the health and wellbeing of Tasmanians. So I would like to get started by asking about your journey with the foundation So for you personally, can you tell us about your motivations to work within this industry and key moments in your career that led you to where you are today working for the Royal Harbour Hospital Research Foundation? Okay, well, thank you, Ellie, and thank you, Neve. It's great to be here today. Um, I'm a Tassie girl, born and bred, and um, right about the time that I was born, my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, MS, and I can um, even point to a clipping that my mum has from the press from back in the 1960s that says, the cure for MS is just around the corner. So I guess I grew up always with a fascination for when things aren't quite as they should be, what can be done to try to sort that out, and most particularly in the health area. Um, if I leap miles ahead, I my dad worked for the hydro, and I um, Tasmanians will know that some of our more remote locations across Tasmania are where hydro have their biggest presence. Um, I guess I came to know a lot about those regional rural areas of Tasmania and some of the disadvantage that they face. 
uh, particularly in the health context. So my first career was actually as what's known as a school dental therapist and I was working a lot in um, quite remote locations, many hydro towns, uh, so the central highlands, the far southwest of Tasmania and it was a really rewarding part of my career because most of those kids they generally don't have a great diet. Um, the, the thing to do to hang out after school is to go to the shop and eat lollies. And these areas, um, from a public health perspective, aren't fluoridated. So their experience of decay is really, really high. And that helped me to understand the role of a public health service and what it can do to um, change lives. It's not just about going in there, drilling, filling and doing all that kind of stuff. It's building understanding of health literacy and, and trying to shape some change, connecting with parents and trying to shape some generational change. Um, I loved academia though and uh, there's not a great deal that happens of a night when you're living in those areas and I went back and uh, did some further study in my Bachelor of Commerce and was really lucky um, after doing my honours year, got a postgraduate award scholarship to start my PhD. Um, (laughs) But I really loved teaching and that opportunity to lecture was incredibly rewarding. It was during that time that I was teaching in the MBA, the Masters of Business Administration that I began to connect with incredible people who were from all sorts of different occupations, spheres in our community, and I could see what else they were doing to help make Tassie a better place. And I just felt that desire to go back out into practice. Um, Fast forward, I got the opportunity to become the CEO of the MS Society of Tasmania. Uh, Every state society is its own entity, but they collaborate nationally for MS Research Australia. And I became part of the MSRA board and working really closely with the MSRA team. And perhaps it's not surprising that when the opportunity to um, become CEO of the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation came up, I found that to be the perfect jigsaw in my career at that stage, putting together um, scope to have a real impact in our local community, a desire, if I go back to my academic days, to see people progress in their academic studies and you know ideally into postgraduate and my absolute passion for research Mm. so there's a a few kind of milestones Um, I've been with the foundation now for almost 11 years in only a few weeks time Uh, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary and we as you know Ellie from doing some comms work with Mm. us over a period of time we have an enormous amount to celebrate where even today as we gathered um to, to come upstairs and begin recording this podcast, ran into a great mate who, he got a $10,000 incubator grant around about the time that I first started working with the foundation. Then he got a $25,000 grant and then we worked together to access further funds from another foundation. Next thing you know, he gets about $1.2 million from National Health and Medical Research Council and his particular concept is now employed in around about 80 centres globally and it's saving lives absolutely every day. It's lovely that your career happened so organically and came from a place of true interest and you were able to piece together your passions and your goals and obviously the interests of Tasmanians. It's been a real privilege. Um, I guess as a foundation, our purpose is not only to provide grants, but clearly we've got to make the money to be able to Mm. have capacity Mm. to do that. Uh, That gives me the chance to meet so many incredible people who share these passions and to bring them along on the ride with us as well. Um, Seeing the reward that they get through supporting local medical research, Mm. I'm incredibly lucky. Mm. So that's a little way to whet your appetite and introduce you to Heather, our wonderful guest. Heather Francis, CEO of the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation. Stay tuned and we'll be talking to her more in just a moment about the foundation in more detail.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are discussing local medical research conducted here in Tasmania. My name is Ellie Clapham and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Heather Francis from the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation. So Heather, I'm really interested to know your opinion. With the pandemic and the rise of public knowledge of health and science, do you think that this will influence the relationship between science and the general public and perhaps how medical research is reported? Uh, that's a great question, Ellie. Yes, it's the short answer. Let me elaborate. I think people have um, often latched on to medical research because they have a family experience of a particular condition that motivates them. But the pandemic's been universal. And I know through those early stages, that sense of urgency for what can we do about this? How can we better understand this condition? How can we try to ameliorate the um, effects of the experience of COVID and most of all, you know, what what's the way to try to eradicate this particular disease? Um, so, yeah, it certainly galvanised our community. I know that um, our financial year is a calendar year and so it was only sort of early stages, end of quarter one, that um, the pandemic really began to hit us here in Tasmania. It meant that we had to reconsider the way we raised funds through a whole variety of things. Typically, we run an Easter event that attracts about 3,000 people. We knew that we couldn't do that in its normal form and we wondered how we would go in delivering it in a, a hybrid modified format. But bizarrely, it really connected to people you could almost sense this hunger for, yep, let's get behind medical research. As we continued through that year, there were some really significant gifts that were made during that time. Uh, We have another really big event where we throw 60 people off the top of Tassie's tallest building every year. Uh, It's called The Edge because when you're standing on the edge of the tallest building, it's uh, fairly confronting, but it does inspire a lot of generosity and it helps to keep medical research at the cutting edge in Tasmania. When we did that particular event, it was early days after um, people had had an experience of lockdown in Tasmania. It was in September of 2020 and typically we'd raise maybe about 60,000 maybe a little more in in your general year, but we raised over $100,000 that year. And I do believe quite strongly that it was a combination of issues. There was pent-up demand. People wanted to become engaged in an experience again, but there was this real desire to do what we could at a local level to support health and wellbeing, particularly people were so much more conscious of not just the COVID experience, but other ailments that had sort of seen a little more um, finely tuned, highlighted during that COVID experience. So a real fascinating role of the foundation is linking up with philanthropy, but also industry, bringing together sectors. Um, I've definitely noticed a shift in industry's willingness to work with researchers, but also uh, looking at social and enterprise as a key requirement to be a successful organisation. What are your thoughts on that and how the pandemic and climate change is shaping this kind of social good aspect Mm. of business delivery? Again, a really great question and quite a hot topic. Uh, I I was lucky recently, I was invited by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research for the University of Tasmania to a a small dinner, uh, which the Vice-Chancellor Rufus Black attended as well. And there was only a small group of us. There were four of us from different sectors of industry. Uh, If I think of Dr Hazel McTavish-West, she runs an entity called Seed Lab and their purpose is to see small enterprises, sometimes social enterprises, grow and flourish in Tasmania. What we were doing was talking about research and how vital that is to our communities in so many different ways, but 
ways in which the university and industry groups can come together to intersect and promote better research. At a, an international level, we're seeing uh, a lot of corporates embrace the concept of values-based partnerships. Um, we talk about this as not necessarily being the not-for-profit sector, but the for-purpose sector. And so identifying industry partners where you can see the values connection, where you can work together in pursuing your purpose, that is really starting to gain enormous strength. It's been around for, golly, 10, 20 years, but increasingly that's top of mind, not just for the for-purpose organisations that are hungry to build those relationships, but also amongst uh, industry sectors. And I'm not talking necessarily about, you know, your big, shiny, multinational or even national level corporates, also your smaller social entities in, in Tasmania as well. So on an individual basis and community level, they influence how larger companies focus and then larger companies, they see that and will impact on a... In a community level as well. You're absolutely right. It's kind of like a, a virtuous cycle, the opposite mm. of a vicious mm. cycle, mm. where, you know, uh, we were talking before we started to come on air today about uh, savvy business people who are looking to invest in uh, making our community better. They certainly scrutinise the performance of the foundation from a very sharp business perspective. If you keep in mind, these people are going to be shareholders of small, medium and large entities and they want to see those entities uh, performing in a values-driven focus as well. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said. Golly, I, I'm showing my age here. If I go back to, dare I say, the 80s and uh, there are movies like the Wall Street one where they talk about that materialistic drive that ignores values and ignores what shareholders might be looking for that goes well beyond the bottom line. Uh, It's a a completely refreshed Mm. way of focusing on business. There's definitely been a shift, I agree. So for those of our listeners who don't um, or aren't familiar with the foundation and how it actually impacts research and facilitates research, can you please explain how the foundation actually delivers their funds to the recipients and what that actual process is and how it's governed? Sure. So we have an annual grant making process and uh, it probably consumes, I guess, maybe about 80% of our focus of making sure great research happens. So to briefly run you through that, we have a scientific research advisory committee. There are 10 members of that. And by purpose, they're quite diverse um, in terms of their area of practice, um, their focus on research methodology, uh, the career stage, all of those sort of things come into the mix. Every March, um, they start to look ahead to the year that uh, is still to come and they look at what our key focus areas should be, our our principles and our priorities. And then we start the preparation process ready to open the call for applications in June of every year. So in a couple of weeks' time, we'll call for applications for the 2023 grant round. From uh, June until the end of July, we get hammered with really great contact from across the research community. I've got an idea. Who should I be looking to collaborate with? What kind of tips can you give me around grant making to help me to get above the rest because it's incredibly competitive. It's a merit-based selection process and the matrix that guides the selection is quite complex. And we do that because we're stewards of people's gifts, their, their donations, their support, and it's really important that we invest that wisely on their behalf. We go through the selection process over August and September and then that research committee provides its recommendations to the board. 
we normally end up with a list of fundable grants um, and the foundation obviously makes a significant investment into supporting those. So, for example, in 2023, we'll be investing about $800,000, but we always aim to have more fundable grants than the foundation itself can fund because then my role is to, if you like, act as a matchmaker and, and broker further relationships with individuals, families, corporations, trusts, other foundations to accelerate our investment by getting them to invest further. So I mentioned that that probably consumes maybe 80-85% of our work in facilitating really great research. But there are many occasions where we're contacted by others, whether they're researchers or whether they're potential funders, who say, look, I can see what you're doing through your grant round. What other opportunities might there be for me? And if I think of, for example, Andrew Black, a local cardiologist, he was looking for a particular sum of money to get a new initiative in cardiac care up and running at the Royal Hobart Hospital. It didn't necessarily fit neatly with the foundation's grant-breaking program, but we're so familiar with the other opportunities that are out there in the community. So being able to sit down and talk with Andrew about what could be done and helping to get a foot in the door and get that initial funding. And then obviously he's been able to swing into the Research Foundation's grant cycles and has achieved several grants over that time as well. So we're not just focused on what can we do as the Research Foundation, but how can we better work with other researchers and other funding bodies to make more and more really great research happen? We're not turf protective. The more that we can make happen, the happier we are. I love it. And also as someone who has benefited from the RHHRF, I just have to say that I think it's fantastic the way that matching process happens. And also... It's like a constant presence that you can aspire to as a junior researcher to say, how am I engaging with the local community? How am I engaging with the health service providers? What can I do to really utilize this career development opportunity and capacity building opportunity, which we will be talking more about with Heather in just a moment. So stick with us. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. I am Ellie Clapham and I'm joined by Neve Chapman and we are talking to Heather Francis, who is the CEO of the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation about medical research. Now, we currently have three women in the room who all work in the medical research and science industry. I can't help but ask about capacity building and women in science and diversity. So, Heather, I know that representation is something that the foundation takes really seriously and makes considerable effort towards. What has the role of the foundation been in building capacity among researchers in Tasmania? Okay, um, so the foundation's grants uh, are structured into three core categories. From time to time, we have extra one-off grants. The incubator grants are a $10,000 one-year grant. We have a $25,000 also single-year grant and then a $450,000 three-year grant. And I'm going to use that last one as my focus. Overall, our purpose is to build capacity in local medical research. We understand that if you want to compete for NH and MRC funding, you need to have the track record. You need to show that you've got the evidence base and the collaborations that are starting to grow. How do you get that started? So that is absolutely a core focus for the foundation. While our other categories have researchers at all different stages of their career, our major project grants are focused on 
early to mid-career researchers, those who are really just starting to emerge in the research area. So we actually have a cap on your level of experience, and that is uh, no more than eight years postdoc. Now, if you consider your average woman who's done her undergrad and then she's set her sights on doing a postgrad, maybe she's had some kids in there as well. If I think about our most recent recipient of our major project grant, um, a woman by the name of Dr Jane Alty, she's originally from the UK. She's had four kids. She's migrated to Australia and she's obviously needed to take some time to settle into our community. She's a very focused clinician, um, but she's got incredible research aspirations. If you consider the time that Jane has needed to take out of her research career, whether that's for having kids and how important that is, but also relocating from the other hemisphere and then beginning to settle in a new community... There aren't that many organisations that stop and pause and think about how do we level the playing field here to be able to build capacity for women such as Jane. It's been really wonderful to be able to see that she fitted our criteria so perfectly by the time we took in account those career disruptions that are an important part of every person's life, man or woman, and that we can help to build her capacity at a really critical level. I think that's such an important point that, you know, building capacity might sound like a really foreign concept to some people, but as a researcher that's one year after my PhD, it is like front of my mind if I want to stay doing good work in medical research, which I do for public good, then I need to get those runs on the board and I need to work with people like Heather and the foundation to say, how can I do that in a way that's meaningful for the community, but is going to make me really competitive compared to those people in larger states. And it's just a, it's just the nature of the game. It is. Neve, I know your career background, and I know that you are a connector of dots as well. Your networks are amazing. One of the things for, if I go back to Jane, she's new in our community, so she needs to build those connections. One of the elements in our matrix for assessment of that major project grant is looking at a team. We're looking for diversification. We're looking at bringing together people who might be quite disparate in their interests. So in Jane's team, I think there's about eight or nine members. And we've got um, coders in terms of building apps. We've got clinicians. We've got basic scientists. There's a huge variety of folk who are coming together to catalyse. And I guess it's that that one plus one equals three, four, five or six way of building capacity in so many different avenues. Yeah, it's fantastic. And for those of our listeners who are interested, we did launch the Diversity in STEM Gallery in 2021 where Jane is featured. And we've been meaning to do an episode with her, so that may be coming up soon. So very quickly, last question, Heather. Can you describe in a few minutes the impact of local medical research facilitated through the foundation on the Tasmanian community? Mm, wow, that's a big, big question. <laughs> Certainly is. Okay, well, let, let's just look at impact to begin with. Um, it's something that we focus on really strongly. I can remember uh, when I first started talking to researchers about the impact of their work, it was regarded, it was seen through a narrow lens. Um A lot of researchers have been necessarily driven to focus on outputs. So by that I mean things such as journal publications, um, maybe outcomes, so change clinical guidelines. But if Beryl from Bothell, who's a mythical character, is asked why does she support the foundation? Why does she make that $2 a week donation? She doesn't really care about journal publications and... uh, 
to be perfectly frank, she doesn't really care about clinical guidelines either. She wants to know what it means for her and her family and other people right across Tasmania. And by this, we mean lifestyle changes and enduring impacts, whether they're social impacts, health impacts, economic impacts, maybe even environmental impacts as well. So there's a huge shift that's taking place in every area of research and science that is focusing on impact. We, I can still remember um, sitting here at Menzies and listening to Jim Sharman talking to researchers maybe about four or five years ago and he had a fabulous analogy and he said the academic Olympics are changing and that we need to shape our minds in this new horizon of impact. We need to have this as our lens. It's for some a bit of a stretch you know it's not it's taking people out of their comfort zone again coming back to that wonderful opportunity that I had to spend with the vice chancellor and deputy vice chancellor of research recently they confirmed that the university like most universities not just nationwide but internationally are shifting their focus from the publish or perish focus that used to be there recognizing that industry partnerships real world outcomes social change that is much more well, no, equally important. So the foundation has now um, steadily increased our emphasis on impact. When we're looking at the feasibility of a study and what its long-term enduring um, outcomes might be, we've gone that next step further into impact. And there are so many examples that we can use to highlight this um, Many of them are looking at enduring problems, neuromuscular disease in the Tasmanian community, cardiovascular disease, going beyond uh, the importance of basic science to look at the translational impact and how that can really start to to, um, benefit our community more broadly in a more sustainable way. Yeah, fantastic. And I really commend you and the whole team at the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation for the huge impact it has had on local community and health service delivery. Another example that comes to mind is Andrew Black, who you mentioned, that clinic that you helped build those, join those dots, get that initial funding for is now usual care in the Royal Hobart Hospital, reducing the number of people representing to the emergency department, reducing the number of cardiovascular deaths through that pathway. And that's just one example. So I think that impact is evident of how a small-ish organisation can have a huge footprint. So thank you so much for all you do for our local community and for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk forever about it. Uh, (laughs) Huge thanks for this gift of sharing the message uh, of the importance of local medical research and especially at those early career stages, building capacity and pursuing impact it's wonderful thank you and thank you so much to ellie stellar first episode well done thank you very much it was made easy with two wonderful people to work with so thank you awesome thanks for listening to that's what i call science please remember that you can follow us on all of our social media channels but instagram and twitter are particularly engaging and there you'll be able to find links to all of the things we've mentioned in this including our diversity in stem um gallery that's online and available to view and also previous episodes where we'll link in all of the wonderful medical research that we've already featured that's been supported by the foundation until next time thank you and goodbye this program was made possible with support from the community broadcasting foundation find out more at cbf.org.au you've been listening to that's what i call science brought to your station and across the nation via the community radio network You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team.
That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.